are listening to a message by Refuge Community Church. Refuge exists to glorify God by making disciples that shape their communities with the love of Jesus. Well, hey, good afternoon. Um, pretty sure I've met everybody in here. Uh, if you're joining online, you don't know me. My name is Josh, uh, and I'm one of the pastors here uh, at Refuge. I'm excited to continue our time in worship today uh, by jumping into the word. Um, Today we're going to be worshiping, right, by continuing in our sermon series uh, called Together Again. Um, And it's really focusing on how we develop quality and good rhythms in the area of Christian community and gathering together as community. As we all know, uh, we're getting toward post-pandemic era. Right, like the majority of places you go, there. All right, we got a lot of excitement. I'm not gonna lie. What's funny is every time I've said that every week, at least one person's like, "Yeah." Uh, so you know that people, you know. I, but I think that serves uh, the exact point that we're making here is that people have excitement about getting to that post-pandemic era, right? Because we can get out there, bless you, and do all the fun stuff, and and get out there and do all the all the fun activities and all that good stuff, right? We all are longing for that. We want to do that. I went to a concert like a month ago, and it was the best experience I felt like in my life. And I've been to a ton of concerts, right? Like, we all are kind of really uh, uh, desiring that and getting back there. And so we're starting to get into the rhythms of, uh, of, of social rhythms and professional rhythms and all these different rhythms. Yet, in the midst of all that, in the midst of all of that excitement, it can be easy to lose sight of the fact that there are spiritual rhythms that we are called to live out as well. Spiritual rhythms that are meant to bring uh, wholeness and meant to draw us closer to God as he continues to do work in our hearts. And that's what this series is about. It's about developing a healthy spiritual rhythm in the area of community and gathering together. Last week, uh, we talked about practically becoming God's people. Yes, we're God's people spiritually. As soon as you come to faith, you become a part of God's people. Yet, oftentimes it feels different knowing that we are uh, theologically and kind of theoretically God's people, God's family. And it's a whole other thing to practically become God's family. To really live out an experience being a family together. So last week we talked about what does it look like to practically become God's family. One of our biggest takeaways was understanding the call of selflessness. Right? A call to care for one another. uh, To love one another. To sacrifice for one another. And in Christian community, how that really aligns us with Christ but also brings us together as one. How that idea of self-sacrificial love... And caring for one another actually brings us together and makes us one in addition to aligning us and drawing us to God. And this week we're staying on that topic a bit and we're going to answer the question, how do we serve Christian community? How do we serve Christian community? And hear me, you may be looking at this thinking like this sounds like an easy question, right? Like there are tons uh, of meal trains for people after they have babies and, and you know, you, you help people move. That's a huge one, right? And then you also help out financially. You got to help out. If anybody's suffering in the church, you want to get that pocketbook out, a little extra money, and give to them, make sure they're all right. Uh, if someone has uh, a need of a place to stay, you offer up your home and let people stay with you. All that beautiful stuff. And yes, these are all true. And hear me. I want you to hear me real quick. I've seen several. Man, my guys are like, yeah, let's praise the Lord today. And that's all right. Um, moms, don't feel weird about that. Don't feel weird about that. We're in here worshiping together as a family, and that's good. Um, several of you hear me. Several of you have done the things that I just said, 
I've watched you do them over the past few weeks, over the past few months. Open your homes to other people. Lend a hand in helping move other people. Out of your pocketbooks, care for one another. Y'all seen uh, the Salazar's meal train. That bad boy's packed, right? Y'all done that, and that's amazing. It's beautiful, and it's powerful because you know that that's not just being a good friend. It's not just being like, oh, yeah, like you do, you guys do community well. There's like a, a refreshing sense of like togetherness with that. No, no, no. It's more than just being a good friend in the context of the church. It's the reality that that, that service is coming from the Holy Spirit at work in us. Working that in us. Drawing us to come together while he's at work in you. That's why it's a blessing. But, but here's the thing. There's something nuanced about that. It's the Holy Spirit doing that work, and that's what makes it beautiful. That's what makes it powerful. Their Christian community—they are uh, sorry. Christian community is distinct because the Holy Spirit is working in it and drawing us together and making us one. That's what makes it powerful. There's communities all over the world, and hear me. When it comes to the simple act of serving each other and loving each other. Some of those communities that aren't Christian at all, that operate by different values, they probably, some of them probably do the idea of community better than Christian communities around the world. That's not what makes the Christian community distinct. It's not that we love each other super well, though we should love each other super well. Christian community is truly unique because it doesn't just care for the body, friend, it cares for the soul. It cares for the whole being. Yes, there is caring for the body. That's all the things we listed out. But there's also caring for the soul. For us to live out Christian community, to bear the benefits of Christian community, we have to learn to care for one another, not just materially and not just emotionally, but spiritually. And all of that is important. Hear me. I'm not saying that one of them uh, is least important. I'm not trying to elevate. There is a holistic care within the community of faith. But the thing that makes the Christian community unique from every other community that you're a part of is the reality that within this community, people take care of your spiritual life. They point your soul back to the goodness of God, the God that made you that has purposes and plans for you. That's what makes this time distinct and different than any other thing you participate in that we can label community. In fact, that's the main idea of today's whole talk. It's in the context of spiritual, spiritually caring community that God keeps us humble and close to himself. That's the main idea. It's pretty simple, right? It's in the context of spiritually caring community uh, that God keeps us humble and close to himself. To help us understand this idea, we're just going to break down into two different sections. We're going to talk about care for others, caring for others, and then we're going to talk about guarding our hearts. Caring for others and guarding our hearts. How do we care for others? Then we're going to talk about the importance of guarding our hearts as we care for others. Let's go ahead and dive in uh, by simply rereading the text. Kind of having uh, heard me give my little introductory soliloquy, uh, let's go ahead and read the text again and then say a quick prayer. Galatians 6, 1 through 5 says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so that you may, so that you also won't be tempted. Carry one another's burdens. In this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone considers himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Let each person examine his own work, and then he can take pride in himself alone and not compare himself uh, with someone else. 
for each person uh, will have to carry his own load. If you would join me in saying a quick prayer. Uh, Father, what we know not, uh, teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not, make us for your son's sake. Amen. All right. So before we jump in, we need to set the stage a little bit. All right. We need to set the stage because uh, y'all heard me say it before. The Bible is written for us, but it's not written. All right. We have, I'm a, I'm a, for class participation purposes, that was sufficient. The Bible's not written, it's written for us, but it's not written to us. In other words, the Bible has eternal truth and wisdom that applies to us today, but it's wrapped up in first century and older ideas and contexts and scenarios. And so sometimes we got to break that down or else we won't fully understand what's happening. As an example, it would be easy to see a verse like today and think, yeah, care for other people and stay humble. Just that idea, care for other people and stay humble. Paul, that's good advice. God, that's good advice. Thanks, God. I appreciate it. Right? My man. And while that's true, that's good advice. And while true, I think Paul would agree God would be pleased if we were to care for others and stay humble. So much more is happening here, friends. So much more is happening here, especially when you understand the deep divides taking place in this church and how this idea of caring for others is such a powerful response to that division and how it serves really as an antidote for that division in so many ways. You see, prior to this letter that we're talking about, this book, Galatians, uh, the Apostle Paul, who wrote it, and his rider die, Barnabas, Right. They got together. They visited the province of Galatia. All right. If you're wondering where Galatia is or what in the world that is, think modern day Turkey. If you don't know where modern day Turkey is, I can't help you. You have Google. All right. Modern day Turkey. They go there. They evangelize. They see people come to faith and it results uh, in a church plant, in a new church right there in Galatia. And so shortly after that, though, after they leave, some Jewish Christians come to the area. They come into Galatia, into the church, and they start teaching that every follower of Jesus needs to submit to Jewish laws and customs in addition to following Christ. So, yes, you can be a follower of Jesus, but every follower of Jesus has to also obey all of the Jewish customs and laws for eating, purity, X, Y, and Z. Now, many biblical scholars believe that this may have been in response to Paul preaching that individuals are saved by grace, that they're saved by grace, that we who are God's people are saved by grace. In other words, of the truth that Christians do absolutely nothing to earn our salvation besides believe in the one who has, right? That Jesus has done it all for us and offers salvation to us, salvation from sin and judgment and spiritual death freely by his grace. That idea it's a beautiful truth, and in Scripture, when that reality comes together with the Holy Spirit working in us, it produces a changed life, a changed heart. It's amazing. But since the beginning of the New Testament church, there have been real big struggles with this idea, too. Real big struggles. And struggles of all kinds, struggles on both sides. Some who have viewed, uh, some who have viewed grace as being a, a, a kind of free-for-all card, a, a blank check, have taken advantage of it. And misused it to do whatever they want, saying that, you know what, you know what, like, for real, uh, <laughs> I know everybody looked around like, what was that? Don't worry, don't worry. Let's re re reel it back in. Um, have used grace to ignore God's will and to ignore God's commands, right? In, in extreme cases, 
people have felt like, you know what, if I can sin more, God can give me more grace, and in that, he is glorified. This is what Paul tackles in Romans 6. But on the other side, there's a whole other set of problems. Right on, on the other side, we've seen this issue where people try to apply human gauges of godly living to people. In other words, if you do this, then you're godly, and that means you're a Christian. Becoming self-reliant. Putting the idea of what it means to be a Christian, what it, the, the, the ownership of what it means to bring salvation to us, to put it on us and to become self-reliant. To really rob God of his glory and salvation. The glory of him just pouring out grace on sinners in desperate need. And really losing the goodness of God that inspires awe and worship in the gospel. And in Galatia, hear me friends, both of these issues were present. And out of this theological division, people that were trying to put too many... Uh, chains on people and say you're not christian unless you do this and people saying no because i'm christian i can do whatever i want it doesn't mean anything out of that came this theological divide that then created relational divide the theological divide the philosophical divide created relational division the church had descended this church that paul is writing this letter to had descended into factions and tribes, and they were at war with one another on theological levels, on philosophical levels, and now it had become contentious, right, hateful, bitter, and judgmental on the relational level. Two camps with very serious philosophical and theological differences that brought them both to being entrenched and hateful toward the other side. Does that sound... Uh, does that remind you of anything now? Remind you of a certain elephant and a certain donkey? And people act like the Bible ain't applicable today, right? Psh. This is the context, this contentious, bitter, judgmental division that resulted in uh, strong that resulted from strong theological disagreement. And it's into this context that Paul writes this letter. And in it, he offers a searing reintroduction of the gospel. He reintroduces the truth of the gospel, silencing those who were seeking to add to that gospel and correcting those who were misusing it. And in it, emphasizing uh, really the beauty of God's grace and mercy and really how it calls us to godliness. It's an amazing book. If you've never read and studied the book of Galatians, I would encourage you to do so. In fact, we're probably going to go over it later this year. But don't wait till then. Get a red start. That's all right. And it's near the end of that amazing letter, after the theological corrections have come, that Paul offers some wonderful insight on how to practically restore the unity that these disagreements and this sin has caused. Paul offers us some wonderful insight, some wisdom on how to restore that unity, how to possibly heal those wounds, and most of all, how to draw us close to Jesus. And he starts by reminding them to care for one another. Look at verse 1 and 2. He says, brothers and sisters... If someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. Carry one another's burdens. In this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. I want you to notice something. In the midst of the theological difference, which was critical and important, again, he identified and, and uh, corrected the theological difference. In light of the division, which again, critical. He's giving advice on how to bring that together. Paul picks up on something that is just as serious as those two things. 
that there are people in this community, probably as a result of false teaching and as a result of relational division that are hurting, that are lost in sin, that have become trapped and engulfed by sin. And it's the Galatian church's job to restore them. It's the Galatian church's job to restore them, to love them, to care for them. This is critical. You know why? Because it tells us that no matter how great the difference, differences and disagreements do not negate the call to love and care for other people. No matter how great the difference between you, me, or anyone else, those differences and those disagreements do not negate God's call on our life to love and care for other people. But, but you don't know what they said to me. It doesn't matter. You don't know what they believe. They believe some outlandish. That doesn't matter. But you don't know what they've done. They've done some pretty crazy stuff in their day. That doesn't matter. When someone is hurting, in need, lost, especially when someone is in sin, the followers of Jesus serve, love, and care for them. That has been the call of the church to care for those that don't agree, even to care for those that straight up oppose us. That's our call. Displaying God's goodness, displaying God's mercy all the way through. All the way through it. And check this out. We do it not just deciding because we're going to be nice, but we do it with a gentle spirit. He says restore them with a gentle spirit. In other words, in kindness, in humility, in patience. We don't use these moments to display our superiority in any way. It's not a moment to show how much more ethical we are or how much wiser we are, how much better our belief system is. But gently, lovingly, patiently. That's what, that's what Paul's encouraging and pushing them toward in order to bring healing to that community. I don't know if y'all ever seen uh, the TV show. I know we got some TV people in here, so um, don't be scared now. Uh, the show Cobra Kai. Okay, all right, got one. Hey, not, there you go, Josh, I appreciate you. Uh, Cobra Kai, it is a, uh, it's an offshoot of the 80s classic, The Karate Kid, right? Ralph Macchio, the crane. Uh, and it follows Johnny Lawrence, who was the, the blonde-haired kid, uh, who's the original antagonist or bad guy uh, in the original movie. And it offers, like, this backstory to him, right? Showing his absent mother and his abusive stepfather and helps us see why he is really the way he is uh, and, and really shows us this new story of him trying to restore in a strange relationship with his son uh, in addition to helping local youth um, through, of course, karate, right? You can't, you can't take out karate from the story. Um, and in one scene, uh, really remind uh, this, this, what we're talking about really reminded me of it uh, because Johnny needs to ask his abusive but also very rich stepfather for some money. And the scene kind of flows through and there's this tension that builds, right? Because he goes and he asks him and, and you can see uh, the arrogance and the, the pride of, of Johnny's stepdad. He looks at him and kind of off the bat just gives him a hard time. Uh, and then surely enough, he finally, uh, Johnny finally sums up the courage and says, I need this money for this. And then sure enough, the jerkness just comes out of the guy, right? He almost just says like, yeah, I'll give you the money. You never done nothing. Out of it. You're like a deadbeat X, Y, and Z. Insert all the things you could think of, right? He gives him money, and in the scene, you can see this guy, like, hates helping. He, like, hates helping him, but he knows he has to. 
Yet he finds this sort of, this sort of solace and condolence in the ability to shame Johnny while he helps him. That's his comfort in the midst of doing what he hates. Friends, we may not know it. We may not even be able to recognize it. But this right here can often be our approach to helping other people. Especially when we're close to them. We get bitter that they didn't listen to us, that they made bad decisions, that they're asking for help again after we've helped them so many times and given encouragement so many times. And maybe unlike Johnny's stepfather, we're not doing it because we just hate the person or we dislike them or we don't want to help. Maybe our anger is rooted in love, right? Maybe we don't hate helping them at all, but rather we hate that the person needs help. We love them. We don't want them to hurt. We don't want them uh, to be in pain. And so we're frustrated that we're having to help again. No matter the reason, in these moments, oftentimes, like Johnny's stepdad, we find this little solace in our heart by reminding the person, you know, I was right about that. I told you about this. You know, I gave you this last time, and I told you not to. Maybe if you didn't make this decision, this bad thing wouldn't happen. Right? We, 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 we put them in a position where we try to shame them just to gain a little bit of comfort in the midst of our frustration that we're having to help again. Yet Paul's instruction is not that we would restore people in frustration, pride, impatience, but hear me, with gentleness. With gentleness. And it's in restoring when gentleness, in verse 2, that Paul says we fulfill the law of Christ. That we fulfill the law of Christ. Now, there's a ton of theories here. And I'm not going to get into all of them because there's a ton of them. But at the end of the day, what Paul's saying here is that this act of caring and restoring people in gentleness points us back to Jesus. When we humble ourselves and restore someone, love someone, not to boost ourselves or to console our own hearts, but to truly uplift that person, right? We are reminded of Christ. We're reminded of his goodness, what he's done and how he calls us to live. Think of a text like Mark 10, 1045 that says, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. Even the word carry in verse two, its most literal translation is to pick something up. It's to pick something up. There's different contexts that it's using, but the most literal way is to say to pick something up. And I love that thought. I love that thought of us picking up others' burdens. I can't help but wonder if Paul saw the connection of us picking up burdens the same way our Savior picked up the burden of our sin. I can't help but wonder if that was a connection in Paul's mind when he thought about us going out of our way. Maybe it's inconvenient. Maybe it's bad timing. Maybe I'm tired. But, but may I, help, I can't help but wonder if he saw the bloody, tired, broken Christ pick up the cross again and say, no, nah, but they need me. I wonder if he made the connection. It's powerful to carry one another's burdens for it to reflect a measure of God's own character in Jesus. But you have to remember real quick, friends, I, I got to say this. Um, that these needs we're talking about here and this idea of caring for people, this is more than food and material needs. Again, what does caring for Christian community look like? These needs Paul's talking about 
in verse 2 and 1 are spiritual needs. In other words, Christian community gently corrects, spiritually corrects those that are around them. Christian community, hear me and listen, Christian community spiritually corrects those that are around them. We look at those who were spiritually tripped up, fallen away, struggling, and offer our hand to restore. Even this idea of restoration, this idea of restoration literally means to put back what was broken. That's the literal idea there. He's saying if you see someone fallen in sin, put your hands there and put them back together. Hear me. It involves getting involved, if that makes sense. It involves getting your hands dirty. This act of Christian community restoring other people isn't hiring a mechanic. It's putting your hands in the engine and watching them get dirty with the mess of what it means to get your hands on something and put it back together. Identifying what's broken and lovingly partnering with God to see it whole again. The community of Christ, God's family, is not called to take a hands-off approach to loving, caring, and restoring others. Paul doesn't see us walking away when things get tough and when things get awkward, but playing a part in identifying what's wrong with that person, identifying what's broken in that person, and partnering with God's spirit to say, Lord, use me and use us to see this person go from broken to whole. Friend, I want to ask you a very personal question to that. Where are you invested to that extent? Within the community of faith, where are you invested to that extent? Where are you invested that you can look at other people and identify there's something broken in that person, in that man, in that woman. I can see it. We can see it. We know it. But that's all right because we're going to make that all right. Where are you so invested that maybe it's not someone else you're looking at, but it's someone else that looks at you and is able to pinpoint, man, when, when Josh says that, it's really because he's insecure about X, Y, and Z. My man got some brokenness on the inside. He's hurt and he's insecure about this, but that's all right because we're going to make it all right together. Where are you invested like that? These are the spaces, that type of intimacy is where God is calling us to. Intimate relationships, intimate relationships that break division, that split apart those differences and drive unity because you can't help but love someone when your hands are dirty with their mess. It don't matter what their political opinion is. When your hands are dirty with their mess and you know we're doing the work together, it, there's not a lot of room for division in that scenario. So we care for others holistically. We restore others spiritually, getting our hands in there, getting intimately involved, knowing a person, letting them know us. But we also have to be careful in these spaces because it's in those powerful places where God is doing powerful things in your life and in my life that the temptation of our flesh will spring up to thwart us. Hear me again. It's in those powerful places where God's doing powerful things that our flesh will kind of stir up and say, no, 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 hold on, hold on, just, just chill, just chill, just chill. It's in those vulnerable moments where we become vulnerable to being proud. 
That's why God, that's why Paul, God and Paul, I mean, God wrote it. Uh, that's why Paul also tells us in verses three through five to guard our hearts. Check out Galatians 6, 3 through 5, just the next three verses. He says, for if anyone considers himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Let each person examine his own work, and then he can take pride in himself alone and not compare himself with someone else. For each person will have to carry his own load. Knowing the condition of the human heart, Paul offers this premeditated encouragement and wisdom for us. And it boils down to this. Guard your heart from pride. In the midst of loving others, in the midst of being vulnerable, in the midst of trying to build intimate relationships where you're trying to be open and they're trying to be open, you're going to get yourself into some spaces where all your dirty dirty laundry is going to be out there, all someone else's dirty laundry is going to be out there, and you're going to have to fight pride in that moment. Paul recognizes pride and conceit as the roots of division, the roots of disunity. Take a look at chapter 5, 26, just the verse right above chapter 6. He says, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. In other words, it's pride and conceit that lead to both provoking others and being envious of others. It's conceit. It's pride that leads to provoking others and being envious of others. And it's in this this warning that Paul offers a great tip of wisdom on how to protect your heart. He offers a great tip of wisdom. He simply lets you know, don't grade your work by someone else's paper. Buddy, don't grade your work by someone else's paper. In other words, stay focused on your heart and don't judge other people's hearts. Look at verse four. He says, let each person examine his own work And then he can take pride in himself alone and not compare himself with someone else. Paul knows that when our focus goes from our heart to someone else's else's actions, pride is next. I want you to hear what I said again because what I said is important. Okay? Paul knows that if our focus goes from our heart to someone else's actions, pride is up next. AKA the easiest way to fall into pride is to simply compare yourself to someone else. And pride doesn't just look one way. The comparison game creates pride that oftentimes has two, maybe more different expressions. But the two that Paul points out here are easy to see, right? Pride can one look like arrogance. When we see ourselves too highly, when the other person's dirty laundry in our view looks a little bit dirtier than ours does. And so we start to see ourselves a little bit higher than we should see ourselves and that person a little lower than we should see them. And all of a sudden we start treating them a little poorly and talking down to them and and giving them advice. It's kind of condescending, a little bit, a little bit deceitful, not deceitful, but a little bit, a little bit uh, antagonistic, belittling is the word I'm looking for. But on the other side. When in the comparison game, pride can also look like shame. It can look like shame when you're comparing yourself to someone else and you don't measure up to someone else. And that's when uh, that pride leads us to become envious and angry at others for what they're doing and what maybe we don't have. The gifts that God has given them that we don't feel like we have been given. But that's why Paul says conceit leads, right, to being envious of others and provoking others. That's what he's trying to point us to. We have to care for others, always paying primary attention to our own hearts. Primary attention to our own hearts and not judging other people's actions and maybe other people's hearts. 
when we focus, hear me, when we focus on our own hearts, even in caring for others, when we focus and, and think about, hey, how, how can I care for my heart? How can I care for this person while still understanding and investigating the condition of my own heart? It, it does two things for us. One, it allows us to celebrate in a healthy way, right? In the text, Paul says, let someone really, like, pay attention to what they're doing. And if you're killing it, boast in it. That word boast is more closely related to the idea of celebrating. Celebrate it. If you're doing great, celebrate it. When you're focused on your heart and your relationship with the Lord and not judging other people's hearts and other people's relationship with the Lord, when you've grown spiritually, when God has evidently done a good work in you, we can celebrate it. We can talk about it and say, man, God's doing this great thing in my life. We can let other people know what he's doing in our life. And we get to do it in good faith and in good conscience, knowing that I'm not telling you so that I can hold what I'm doing over you. I'm just simply observing what God is doing in my life. And brother, sister, you play a part in that. Let's celebrate it together. Right? There's a beauty when we allow our focus to be on what God is doing in us and looking for opportunities to serve others. All of a sudden, we can celebrate well. But we also, through this understanding and through this focus, we also are allowed to rely on Christ properly. We get to celebrate well, but we also rely on Christ properly when our focus is where it should be. Look at verse 5. In Galatians 6, 5, it says, for each person will carry his own load. Each person, right? The addendum for Paul on watch your heart, don't be conceited, don't get proud, is because each person's going to carry their own load. Martin Luther, the great reformer of whatever century that is, I don't know what the century is, but I know he was around in the 500s, all right? Um, he said of these words that these words are forceful enough to frighten us thoroughly so that we don't yearn for vain glory. Hear me, friend. These words are not meant to, to boost us, to inflate our ego and be like, yo, you know, uh, each one's got to carry his own load, and, and you're doing pretty good. You got strong legs. You got broad shoulders. You're doing all right. Yes, there are those opportunities to celebrate what God is doing good, but, but Paul uses these words in order to bring a reality to the forefront of our mind. A reality that I think he believed the listeners of this letter had in mind as well. That the scripture tells us of a day when we will be called to account. That we will be called to account. A day where God will judge every action of every person, every thought, and every feeling. And it won't just be the big stuff. It won't be, did you, did you smoke or have sex, right? Like, it won't, it won't be the, the, the quote-unquote Christian big things. Not that those are big things. I probably shouldn't have said that. There's no, all sin is the same. It'll be everything. Look at a text like Matthew 12, 36, where Jesus himself says, I tell you that on the day of judgment, people will have to account for every careless word they speak. Every careless word. Just something that crossed the mind. A simple slip of the tongue. And Jesus said, there's going to be a day where you got to answer for that. You're going to have to answer before the holy, divine, righteous creator of all things. You're going to have to answer for that. Every single sinful, judgmental, envious thought will be judged. Where every passing thought, whether lustful, 
hateful, joyous, will be called to account, where we will be brought before the holy and righteous one. And he will lay out the fullness of our lives and say, it's time. It's time to call for account. And hear me, friends, in that moment, what Paul wants us to understand, the greatest advantage to our humility and enemy to our pride will be the knowledge that in that day, I will either stand before that God and know that I am guilty by way of my own life, heart, and actions, or I stand before that God knowing that I am innocent by Christ's heart, work, life, and actions. That will be the greatest weapon against my pride and the greatest tool of my humility. The knowledge that before that almighty God who calls me to account for every single thing I've ever done, where I will be declared innocent because of my reliance on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that cleanses me from all sin and from all guilt and makes a new creation of individuals like me and like you, but collects those individuals together to say, now out of these individuals, I have made a new people, my church, that's called to give of themselves and to love one another based on the fact that I have loved them and given myself for them so that they can model who I am to a dying world who desperately needs to hear the good news that the day before me has a solution and I sent him to do it for you, right? That's the beauty. That's what God, that's what he's doing when he's saying, bring this people together and care for one another. Care for one another. Care for one another spiritually. Friend, this work does more for us than just humble us, friends. This idea of relying on Christ, it does more for us than just humble us. It leads us to worship. Hear me, I want you to get what I'm saying with this. The end game of Christian community is not perfection. The end game of Christian community is not perfection. Only Christ can do perfection. And scripture tells us in Philippians that there's going to be a day when Christ's like, yeah, I finished that. The end game of Christian community is not perfection. The end game of Christian community is worship. If we come together, when we come together, and we humble ourselves, and we lay down our life, and we care for others, we join Christ in his character and mission to love others, and we're reminded of Christ's own goodness in our lives. Friend, in the context, the spirit, in, in this context of a spiritually caring community, we're not just humbled. Look at me. We're drawn close to the Father. We're drawn close to the goodness and graciousness and mercy of God because you're cared for 100%. But also because in the caring uh, for others that you are offering, you're led to the feet of a merciful, gracious God who understands what it looks like to lay down his life and care for someone in the midst of their sin and in the midst of their folly and in the midst of their failures because he did it for you. And he did it for me. And it's in that space before him that we are invited not just to care for others, but to care for others in the knowledge that we worship a beautiful and gracious God. That because of the work of this beautiful God, we will stand before that God, hands together, hands dirty as all get out because we were involved in each other's lives, but clothes and soul clean as snow because this Jesus has made us new. That's what happens. That's what happens when he says, hey, when a brother or sister 
is fallen in sin, restore them. Because the, the fruit that comes when you put your hands in that mess will not just be their restoration, it'll be the reminder of your restoration. It'll lead you to fall on your knees, metaphorically, maybe literally, to worship the God who has redeemed, saved you, and made you new. That's the invitation that we have today when Paul uses words like when someone has fallen in to sin, restore them with a gentle spirit. That's the invitation. That's my hope for us today as we come to the conclusion of our time. Right, that you, you would begin this process of thinking, Father, where, where can I participate in this type of worship? Where can I participate in the type of worship that allows me to become intimate with others, to become intimate with myself, to be vulnerable, and in that vulnerability begin to capture and recapture over and over and over again your great grace and your great mercy. That's the invitation for us today. And as we close up, I got a couple of practical takeaways for you to help you do that. Uh, by a couple, I mean one single one. <laughs> and that one single one, as we close, is this. Study yourself. It's the most practical takeaway that Paul has. He literally is like, look, keep your eyes on your... He's, he's echoing every teacher that's ever existed on the face of the planet. When he's like, hey, keep your eyes on your own paper. Keep your eyes on your own paper. Keep your eyes on your own heart. Focus on that. Study yourself. That doesn't mean, obviously, that we don't become uh, aware or keep our eyes out for those that are in need of care, but rather study yourself, study your heart. AKA, this is what I'm saying. This is the most practical version of this. Make a strengths and weaknesses list for yourself, spiritually. <laughs> if you're not good at soccer, I don't care about that, right? Today, what we're talking about is making a strengths and weaknesses list about your spiritual life. Consider where you're strong spiritually. Consider where you're strong spiritually and where you're weak spiritually. Be honest. It's okay to be honest. For the things that you can see, hey, I'm strong at that. Praise God for those, friends. Praise God. Celebrate that. Allow other people to celebrate it with you. And I, I look around this room, and I see gifts galore. I see my sister Jenna, who absolutely loves people, does a great job with people. Right next to her, she has her husband, Daniel, and he loves the scripture. Can open it up, tease it out. Right? I got our sister Virtuous. She's an amazing, loving person that has gone out of her way to just, I mean, just really initiate herself into people's lives. Like, yo, I'm fixing to be your friend. It's beautiful. There's these beautiful strengths in here. Celebrate them. I'll get, if y'all want an email where I'll get to say y'all's good things, holler at your boy. That's all right. I'll send that to you. But then make a list of the weaknesses as well. Be real with yourself. Be real with yourself. Recognize, man, Father, these are places where I'm weak, but your grace has covered me. And so allow me, Father, allow me to be vulnerable with these places of weakness. And again, I, I, to emphasize, consider being vulnerable with your Christian community. Let others in. Invite others into what's going on in your heart. The places where you're weak. The places where you're struggling. The places that you don't want anybody to think about, that you don't want anybody to know about. Friends, the grace of God has cleansed you and made you clean. You ain't got to worry about that. That little whisper that says, no, you can't tell nobody about that. He already knows. And he's forgiven you by the work of his son. Invite others in. We'll have a place to do that in community groups, but I hope you do it even more so in even more intimate spaces. 
uh, maybe inviting other people personally to talk it out. And when you get there, uh, hear me, friends. This is the last thing I'm going to say. Uh, if you get that invitation, friend, take it. If you get that invitation from somebody, that is God's open door for you to obey the scriptures that we just talked about today. If you get someone in your inbox, in your, in your text messages, whatever, that, that is looking at you and saying, yo, I, I'm, I'm, I need some work in some spaces, and I'm, I'm asking you to help me. Take that. Don't let it go. Don't be like, that's a little weird. Don't worry about the playoff game that's on that night, X, Y, and Z. Don't worry about Austin FC playing if you're me, right? Like, man, set that aside. This is more important than that. I lovingly got to tell you, this is more important than that. It's my desire that as we really partake in this rhythm, this rhythm of caring for one another spiritually and intimately, that it wouldn't just allow us to be together more or love each other more or, or have a caring community, but that it would lead us to worshiping God. That it would produce in us a worship for God as we care and love one another. Uh, let's go ahead and pray. Father, thank you so much for this time together. Help us, uh, bless us. Again, uh, open our hearts and our minds, God, to receive from you um, what we lack and what we need, but also continue the work in us that you've been doing to bring together a people that are, uh, I think, just captured by your grace and your goodness that stirs and leads us to caring for one another well. If that's not us right now, Father, I ask that we would be obedient to your word. And in that obedience, you would reward it with faith and worship that produces the very thing that we long and pray for today. We love you. We thank you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope this message encourages you and strengthens your faith.